Welcome to Babel, Translating the Middle East, a podcast from the Middle East program at CSIS. Here on Babel, we take you beyond the headlines to take a closer look at what's happening in the Middle East and why it matters. This week on Babel, John talks with Dr. Carson Veland about humanitarian aid in Syria. To translate some of what's happening in the Middle East, this is Babel. Dr. Carsten Wieland is a German diplomat, the senior Middle East advisor for Germany's Green Party Parliamentary Group, and an associate fellow at the Geneva Center for Security Policy. He is speaking to us today in his personal capacity, and his latest book is Syria and the Neutrality Trap, released in May 2021. Carsten, welcome to Babel. Thank you, John, for having me here. What's the neutrality trap? Well, the neutrality trap is that people who decide about the funding for humanitarian deliveries in donor countries, in ministries, they are faced with a dilemma often. We all have a firewall between the political people in an institution and the humanitarian ones. There's this notion that politics spoils humanitarian purity. But if you have a case in Syria where there is an international practice established that humanitarian aid goes through governments, and you have a government that is responsible to a large extent of the humanitarian disaster that is happening on the ground and gets the big chunk of humanitarian aid delivered through its government. Now you ask yourself, is that something that this international practice was made for the humanitarian deliveries, especially in the first years of the conflict, were very difficult. This government besieged areas and made besieging and starving as part of its warfare. Now, in this case, the small NGOs who have worked cross-border in the north and reached the areas where the bombs were falling were not considered to be neutral in the first years of the conflict by many donors because they were working with the rebels. So they were considered to be political. It was much easier also for any kind of auditing board that was controlling the money flows in our Western countries to spend the money at the UN and with the UN's humanitarian deliveries. But where the money went, how the UN operated in Syria, this was much less a topic of discussion. Now you end up in the neutrality trap. You don't want to be political because you want to be neutral. And you want to adhere to international practice of neutrality. And in the end, you end up financing a government through humanitarian deliveries uh, or bolstering it uh, that is responsible for most of the destruction. So rather than relieving humanitarian suffering, you're reinforcing the abuse. What percentage of humanitarian assistance to Syria now goes through the government in Damascus? Well, it has changed throughout the years. But there were years where almost 90% of uh, humanitarian deliveries went through Damascus. And if you look at the statistics of the Syrian Network for Human Rights, it is more than 90% of the civilian deaths that are the government's responsibility as well. So you have actually a mismatch here. And you have, in some areas, only 1% of aid went through to the besieged areas in the difficult years. Nowadays, in Idlib, uh, most of the aid comes through cross-border because the government doesn't allow cross-line. So why is cross-border necessary in the first place? Because cross-line doesn't work. 
we have like 4 million people in Idlib. Many of them have been displaced various times uh, in the recent years, and 3 million of them are in need. And this is mostly done and done by cross-border delivery. And that's a controversial the practice. Is aid that comes in through Turkey to help people so it doesn't have to go through a government Damascus that many people in the Idlib area either see themselves hostile to or threatened by. Yes, indeed. It goes through Turkey. Basically, the government of Syria doesn't control those borders anymore. So there are controversial issues here. First of all, a government in place, like the Syrian one, claims that it has the right to deny cross-border delivery because, of course, this government is not interested in feeding those people that they're fighting. On the other hand, in humanitarian legal discussions, you have a strong view that in the progressive humanitarian and international humanitarian law, you don't even have to ask a government for its consent when there are massive humanitarian sufferings, when there is a massive violation of human rights happening. But still, the international practice is that the UN Security Council needs to approve cross-border delivery. It is easier to adhere to this international practice as it has been in the past decades and to deliver the big chunk through government than opting for cross-border because then you need the Security Council. It was three years into the conflict in Syria, 2014, when the first cross-border resolution was passed. So there were three years of humanitarian suffering without cross-border in the first place. Then this cross-border resolution has been challenged in the Security Council several times, especially by Russia and China, and will be challenged again now on the 10th of July this year. So the question is, is the UN allowed to deliver cross-border beyond 10th of July, or will this practice end? In this case, there will be a lot of people who are not reached anymore, especially in Idlib. And the other question that is interesting is, will NGOs or bilateral humanitarian aid be able to compensate the loss of the UN's cross-border deliveries. Most experts say by far it's not possible. What has the trajectory of the humanitarian response in Syria looked like over the last 10 years? Has the government learned more than the NGOs have? Has the government learned more than the donor governments have learned? How has this unfolded? Because humanitarian assistance is traditionally for acute problems, and this is an acute problem that's lasted more than a decade. There have been developments throughout the years. The UN, in the first place, has made a crucial decision to stay in Syria and to operate under the conditions that the government imposed on them. And the conditions were quite tough. They needed to register with the government. They can, they can only work together with partners or NGOs who are under the so-called Syria Trust that is run by uh, Assad's wife. There is a whole system where the Syrian government is refeeding that money into its own machinery and thus it is also ending up in its own war. There are cases where in conflicts governments have pushed out the UN, have tried to get rid of the UN, have tried to get rid of internationals on its ground. In Syria, it was the opposite. It was an important and valuable resource to have the UN activity on Syrian ground. On the one hand, because of money, there is a um, regulation 
that only 10% of those deliveries can be imported from abroad and the rest is delivered by Syrian businessmen who in turn have to pay a percentage to the Assad government again. And secondly, another resource is legitimacy and international activity on your ground is is a source of legitimacy because you can say, look, we are cooperating with the UN. The UN is in our country. Now, so legitimacy is important and that's why the government really had a high interest that the UN stays in Syria. The question is of what would have happened if the UN had said, well, I think the real damage and humanitarian suffering is actually taking place out of your control. And if you don't allow us to really reach the needy, if you don't allow us to deliver principled humanitarian aid, we will pull out altogether. That would have been the radical option. And I know there are a lot of difficulties and problems in pursuing this option, but perhaps it is also a matter of how hard humanitarian actors negotiate. For example, in Bosnia, in 1993, the UNHCR stopped all its deliveries all of a sudden to all the parties because they were obstructing humanitarian aid. And that caused a huge uproar. In the end, the parties gave in and said, okay, okay, we will let the trucks cross through the truck checkpoints again. We will let this humanitarian aid being unloaded. I have never heard that from Syria. And to the contrary, there are years where only 10% of the demanded or requested aid got through to the needy, and it's a trade-off. Those who say we cannot uh, go out of Syria altogether also have a point, because a lot of other people would then suffer, right? It's a huge dilemma. In the end, it's a dilemma that shows that a conflict is uh, escalated to such a degree with such a government that does not show any particular responsibility for its people. In the end, you see that the humanitarians are carrying the load of such a warfare when the political actors have failed to found a solution to this conflict. This is your third book about Syria. You understand the Syrian government from before the war started in 2011 better than almost anybody. What of this story is specific to Syria? And what parts of the experience of the last 10 years do you think humanitarians should generalize as they think about conflicts elsewhere? Some of the patterns are not specific to Syria. One thing that is specific to Syria is the scale, the large scale of deaths, of suffering, of destruction, the large asymmetry of the conflict, and the large responsibility of a government that is under international law, responsible to protect its citizens and its population. And then you have not only how many people died, but also how they died in torture chambers. So the humanitarian disaster and suffering was just immense. Another interesting aspect about this conflict is the timing in which it has happened. We had all this experience before. We had a military intervention in Iraq. We also had the Arab Spring where this principal responsibility to protect had a heyday when it came to the intervention in Libya. And this intervention overstepped its mandate. Russia and others who fear to be at some point at the receiving end of this responsibility to protect principle have counteracted uh, all these developments. They are afraid of a gradual shift of international law towards their disadvantage, towards 
a possibility to intervene on behalf of people who are suffering human rights violations and humanitarian suffering. In the Syria context, R2P has been buried under the rubble. R2P hardly plays a role. There is no appetite to intervene on behalf of people. In Iraq, we had no-fly zones for the Kurdish areas in the north. Nothing of that kind has happened in Syria. It was a bad timing. Also, an international law is now also shifting. The goalpost is shifting. There is even the controversy that you don't even need to ask a country to allow cross-border delivery. You have Russia, China, but then you have Syria, all its allies, the usual suspects. Syria, Venezuela, North Korea, who try to question consensual language and consensual principles in international law. In the Human Rights Council documents and conclusions, very often things are turned backwards. They don't talk about the consent of a government uh, to cross-border aid. They call it now the full consent of a government. It's actually nonsense semantically, but you know where this is heading to? We have to take care that this goalpost is not shifting further and further into the corner. We have to kind of pull it back into the center and say, look, we have had the Geneva Conventions, even Syria is part of its uh, signatories. We have hundreds of years of international law. We are in an era where multilateralism, international norms have not been very highly respected. And also the outcry against their violations have been lower and lesser than in other conflicts. Now, this is a challenge. And that's the challenge that goes far beyond Syria. But Syria could be, because of its massive scale, a trigger to think about lessons learned, to think about if international practice should be continued as it is, and to think about what operational recommendations one could take from this disaster in Syria. One of the complexities of the conflict in Syria is it's not just the conflict between the government and part of the population, but there's a terrorist element that has been at play for many years. You could argue about whether it's exacerbated by one side or the other, but it certainly creates problems for humanitarians who, in many cases, would have to deal with designated terrorist organizations to deliver assistance to different populations. And in the area on Idlib, the government is controlled by HTS, which has its roots in Al-Qaeda. How should humanitarian organizations deal with not just governments that are repressive, but terrorist groups that in some cases are integrated with the opposition. The humanitarian problems have occurred at a time when the radicalization was not at its height as it is now. This problem was there first and was an upheaval that was civilian and was in, uh, not armed um, in the first place. But then it radicalized, it militarized. And as you say correctly, we have uh, many conflicts in Syria and sub-conflicts so far away from the original conflict. The responsibilities of governments are higher and stronger than those of non-state actors. However, progressive international law is also putting a burden on those actors, and they do also have uh, certain obligations. Although they're not as hard and they don't reach as far as the governments. Nowadays, as the sub-conflicts, variety of conflicts have mutated into what we are seeing now in Syria, uh, we do have pressure on humanitarian work 
In those areas, the Commission of Inquiry has also stated that all sides have committed humanitarian war crimes. This is not only something that the government has to deal with. You have a wide spectrum of opposition, those who are more moderate, also those who are sitting in Geneva in the a political process, although stalled, etc. And then you have those on the ground, these groups that have radicalized under these circumstances. But if you look at the scale, where the great chunk of humanitarian resources are flowing, and how these humanitarian deliveries are handled, you will see that there is a huge asymmetry as well. The government has an apparatus that is, uh, has a lot of advantages and a lot of more resources than the other side. And when it comes to international humanitarian human rights law, what the government is doing is much more significant, also with the potential to change the interpretation and the practice of these international uh, rules and regulations. The Russian government has used the terrorist threat to justify much of what it does in Syria. We have the expiration of Security Council permission for cross-border assistance coming July 10th. You are a career diplomat. How do you think Western countries should deal with the Russian position on Syria and Russian influence in Syria? Coming up in the Security Council, what should diplomats be doing both immediately before that vote and immediately after the vote? Well, I think it is important to know that humanitarian aid is not tradable. It's not transactional. It's principled. You cannot start trading humanitarian access or cross-border delivery. It's a very difficult dilemma, especially for the people suffering. But when we start letting ourselves being pushed into a corner where we have to trade humanitarian access with non-humanitarian services, I think that we are losing this battle because the battle is already there that we are asking a government for permission in a situation that is so dire that many experts of international law would even say you wouldn't even have to ask it. And we do that and we still do ask them. And we have this situation in the Security Council. Now, we cannot let this goalpost shift and shift ever more. Don't trade humanitarian aid. Try to learn from the mistakes made on the ground in Syria, shouldering up with partners in Syria that were not really humanitarian, employing government family members in UN ranks. All this has happened in Syria. These are practices that have caused controversial reaction and criticism and the UN had to adjust and to react. And that's why they started to draft the parameters and principles, how to deliver humanitarian aid in Syria. But this is a paper. You have to put it into practice. And in this vote in the Security Council again now, diplomats always have to find compromises. But we always have to, to remember that these are principles from the Geneva Conventions. We are living in an international environment where we still adhere to multilateralism in some way. If you give away these pillars of international principles and law, we will find ourselves on a slippery slope, uh, which is even worse than the neutrality trap. The political minds, they are always interested in a dialogue on, on Syria. But what is something that I think most Western countries have rejected is the normalization discourse 
on Syria. And to hear, well, now everything is normal, the war is over, now you can start reconstruction and we don't need cross-border any longer. I think this is something to resist because, as we remember, the Syrian government has not really engaged constructively in the Geneva process and there has not been an inch of political reform and movement in, in Syria. It's not about regime change, and I know that the government in Damascus fears even the political process in Geneva to be uh, regime change with other means or something similar. I think it is far from that. If there is no unlocking of the political process, this would entail an improvement of the humanitarian situation and of the human rights situation, then there is no discussion of normalization somehow plausible and logical in Syria because it's just not normal. We have a, a situation where 90% of the Syrian population is living under the poverty line. And this is in the so-called peace time of Assad. Bashar al-Assad is still young as a president. He will probably not see this country be united and rulable again. So what is his alternative? His fear is that he gives away his entire power if he does the first small step so that he's getting into something that he cannot resist and stop any longer. I think this is not the case. I think there are many Syrians on both sides of the aisle who would hope that this country would turn into a country that is governed in a different way and would also, lots of Syrians would be happy to return and others, of course, not. But there are Syrians who would like to return into a country where they are safe. And these are human rights protection issues and, and humanitarian issues at the table. It's not regime change issues at the table. You know, when we see what Syrians want right now from this government is protection, is return, is property rights, etc. It's not regime change. They're tired of war, you know, but we don't have any progress in Geneva. And that's why I think a normalization discourse is hard to understand for, for many Syrians. Carson Vivan, thank you very much for joining us on Babel. Thank you very much for having me, John. Next up, Will, Natasha, and I discuss the July 10 vote on cross-border aid at the United Nations Security Council and its potential implications. Dr. Phelan spoke about the shifting goalposts of international law and norms regarding humanitarian intervention without consent of the government. How have aid agencies navigated the issue of respecting national sovereignty while also providing aid to vulnerable populations in Syria and elsewhere? Were there any red lines? This is a perennial problem for humanitarian aid agencies for the past century, frankly. I mean, I remember being in a UN compound in northern Kenya, sort of sitting in a dark corner as I watched our World Food Program employees shake hands with a presidential candidate at the time that was actually on trial for war crimes at the ICC. This is just a really complicated space base to navigate because you need to deal with sometimes really bad actors in order to maintain access to populations that you want to work with, that you want to provide aid to. This aspect of dealing with uh, with nasty people, I don't think is unique to Syria. And in Sudan, for example, Omar Bashir did actually kick out all internationals for a period to sort of teach them a lesson. But I think what we have in Syria is a bit different. The government, as, as Dr. Vilan said, wanted them to stay. And it also had, and this is something that I think sometimes is lost in the literature, 
had a long history of working with UN agencies and aid agencies prior to the uprising to deal with the Iraqi refugee crisis and, and other issues. So it kind of learned to infiltrate these organizations with their own people. You see a lot of these people being recycled, actually, into the current conflict as well. And the UN started just agreeing to a lot of things that it previously hadn't agreed to, things like a government-affiliated organization, the Syrian Arab Red Crescent, delivering their convoys on behalf of the UN. But there's a number of examples of this. One example that I think springs to mind for me is sieges, which was such a prominent part of the conflict in Syria. And before I joined CSIS, I was doing some work on how to get aid to besieged areas. And if there were ways of getting around some of these actors who were seeking to divert aid, or just seize it for their, for their own good. And one of the fundamental questions was, do you continue to provide aid when you know that some of it's going to get diverted and accept that some of it's going to be lost? Or do you try and just say, we have red lines and we're not going to keep going? We know that you're taking aid away from those it was intended for. And do you then essentially, in this case, let people starve or sort of stop trying to get aid to them? And it's such a difficult question. But some of the organizations that I spoke to were saying that they were trying to do things that would minimize diversion and try and favor interventions that are less beneficial for those who seek to profit from it. So one very specific example was providing seeds to people living in besieged areas that would either be used by farmers for agricultural production of food or even for people on the domestic level so that you could then have um, urban rooftop gardens that would try and create longer term resilience in the face of aid restrictions. And so that's just sort of one, one really specific example. But certainly the restrictions that we've seen in Syria have been on a, just a different scale. Just to give a, a really palpable example, the nasty negotiations that had to go on was the situation where uh, there were two towns, Madaya and Zabadani, that were besieged by uh, Hezbollah and Syrian regime forces. And then there were a couple of towns in the north that were supposedly being besieged by opposition-held areas. The problem with the negotiations for this arrangement was that the areas that were being besieged by the regime were much more heavily cut off than Fua and Kafraya, which were to the north, which were receiving drops of munitions and cash assistance from the regime. And the problem was that anytime someone needed to be medically evacuated, for example, like a child who was dying of malnutrition, and dozens of them died of malnutrition in Madaya, if they had to be emergency evacuated, that meant that someone in Fua and Kafraya had to be emergency evacuated, but that almost never happened. So what you ended up seeing was just hundreds of people in these besieged areas dying of malnutrition and lack of medicine and treatable diseases, which was really tragic. And now we see that the besieged areas have been retaken by the government, but we still have this manipulation from top to bottom, and it's still not entirely clear how much money that donors are allocating to UN agencies or to NGOs, how much of that is actually getting to beneficiaries. But this is all to say that there are no red lines. It's, it's very hazy, and humanitarians are left to sort out this nasty business by themselves. But I think the question of what do you do when the government or a non-state armed group, what do you do if their desire is to eliminate a group of people? 
What do you do when maintaining your presence on the ground as aid agencies becomes more important than responding to need, which is a trend that we're seeing in, in data on humanitarian responses worldwide? And importantly for the Syria context is what do you do when you're 10 years in and there's no end in sight and you're still providing this unconditional humanitarian aid? Or even when maybe they're not trying to eliminate the groups and they're trying to benefit economically from the status quo continuing. So I think the reason that some of these sieges went on for years and years on end is not necessarily because the regime lacked the military ability to recapture them, although they certainly had problems. But I think part of the motivation was because they were benefiting from being able to control the aid that went into these areas strategically, and not just by physically letting convoys in, but by controlling the networks of procurement that aid agencies have to use. And this is really, really important up to this day, because as Dr. Veland's book points out, you still have to procure almost everything if you're an aid agency from inside Syria, which means that you have to work necessarily with a government-affiliated company or aid agency. So that, that further fuels this sort of war economy as well. So the international community tried to solve some of these access issues through a UN Security Council resolution that allowed aid to be coordinated and delivered cross-border. As Veland mentioned, this resolution is set to expire on the 10th of July. China and Russia have seemingly been united on seeking to reduce or close down cross-border aid for some time now, in obvious contrast with the United States and its partners. What is their reason for opposing what is indisputably a life-saving measure? Well, I think what you just said at the end is a really important thing to, to remember here. There is no humanitarian justification for vetoing the UN agency's cross-border access to Syria. This is not a humanitarian question at all. This is a political question. And I think a lot of people in the aid sector are really nervous about talking about the politicization of aid access because they want their, their operations to be neutral or principled. Um, and talking about politics makes it difficult. But I think it's really important to remember it's Russia and China that have been politicizing this aid access from the start. And I think they have various interests that they're trying to pursue in doing this. For Russia, it's about rehabilitating Assad and boosting his legitimacy. They say that the, the shifting context of the battlefield, the fact that Assad has retaken more territory in Syria is justification. And Russia first abstained from renewing this vote in 2017. But part of it is about uh, enhancing his control and saying the conflict has changed, Assad is now in control. I think part of it is about trying to get concessions from the West. Russia is very keen to to link the issue of cross-border aid with Western sanctions. And I think that's not appropriate. They're two very different issues. But each time Russia holds this ability to veto over Western donors, they're trying to seek concessions. And I think sanctions relief is a key aim here. And I also think it's potentially about trying to expand Assad's authority. I mean, with the Northwest, if you cut off UN agencies' access or ability to operate in that area, the humanitarian conditions are going to get worse, the area is going to get weaker, and then that may well facilitate conditions for a renewed regime offensive on the area. So I think there are several, several reasons why Russia is, is seeking to do this. And I think on the side of China is an interesting trend. 
Because you saw both of these actors voting for the resolution when it first came up in 2014. So to say that this is going against sovereignty, et cetera, et cetera, is a bit ridiculous at this point, frankly. But I think that Russia here wants to hold the torch of inviolable sovereignty. And this is going back to archaic notions of what sovereignty is and that it stands in the face of even genocide, even mass war crimes, for example. And obviously China and Russia have domestic reasons for trying to sort of lift up this notion. It's also interesting that there is really no argument in terms of the government's ability to contain this crisis, which it clearly has not been able to do. I mean, you have a terrorist group with international ambitions like ISIS taking root in Syria. You have millions fleeing across the border. This is clearly a state that's falling apart. And so what that means beyond Syria, if there's other cases of this happening in other places and we're not even talking about military intervention. We're talking about humanitarian aid in order to reach people to in order to sort of meet their basic, basic needs in crisis situation. If that doesn't really stand here, I can see that ripple effect really affecting peace and security well beyond Syria in the future. And I think it's interesting to note that the role of the Security Council in the UN has shifted in this regard as well. There are lawyers who argue that the Security Council shouldn't be having any say over aid access, that their mandate is limited to peace and security, and that this shouldn't be an issue that comes up in the Security Council at all. But I think this has set a precedent that unfortunately we will now see repeated in future conflicts, where aid access is seen as an issue for the UN Security Council. And that then means that the five permanent members who hold veto power will hold veto power over aid access in future situations. And I think that's a very alarming precedent to have set. And I fear that it won't be long until we see it, this pattern repeating again and again in other contexts. One of the issues here is that this provides more leverage for countries like China and Russia. And the U.S. administration has said that it is going to prioritize China in future foreign policy planning. So what happens when your priorities as the Biden administration, for example, are aid, human rights, and dealing with China? And you have two countries sitting at the Security Council with equal vetoing power that can use this as just another point of leverage over Western donors. I think that, as Will was saying, the ramifications beyond Syria are quite significant, and they go beyond humanitarian aid, as I mentioned. I think that this is issues of peace and security for the future. And if the Security Council is allowed to dictate what happens with regards to humanitarian aid, then that gives the traditional Western donor community a lot less tools in their toolbox, frankly. On the humanitarian side, there's a lot about this radical option that Dr. Wieland was talking about, which is allowing access or withdrawing. But there are things in between that can be done, and I really do hope that there are lessons learned from Syria. One of the recommendations in our recent report on the cross-border issue is better coordinating donors and also aid agencies, even UN aid agencies, which are often acting separately to gain more negotiating power as a whole. 
rather than each of them kind of negotiating on their own with various line ministries within a government. And I think that there are tangible steps that one could take that isn't either of these very radical options that would lead to, to much better outcomes. Thanks for listening to Babel. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can find more analysis on this topic linked in the show notes on the CSIS website, and you can find us on Twitter at CSIS Mideast.